This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Side note, my youngest son is in CRISPR camp this summer. They're just uh, <laughs> genetically modifying whatever organisms they find out in the wild. Can I do research with you? And she was like, well... Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, Josh looks back at his illustrious career and shares some insights with the rest of us. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 178. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Illustrious career, huh, Dan? That's what it is, Josh. <laughs> you, you let me write the intro. I'm going to write what I feel like. Well, I won't. I won't correct you. How about that? Okay. How about that? Let listeners decide for themselves how illustrious it is. Well, Josh, you and I, uh, as reported, we got together this past week and had a great time. I have to say. I feel like whenever you visit North Carolina now, we try to pack in every possible fun thing to do at once. So we did the escape room, which we beat. We sure did. We were told uh, 20% of people uh, make find their way out of that escape room. So a humble brag, we did make our way <laughs> it's out. It's not a humble brag, just a brag. Oh, just a brag. Straight up brag. <laughs> yeah, we did make it out. Uh, it was a vampire, uh, it was like a Dracula castle escape. So we did that. We ended up getting dinner. And then for the ethanol section this week, unplanned, we ended up at a cocktail bar in Durham called Corpse Reviver. And I think you and I had an experience that neither of us has really had before, which is consuming what are called Amari, A-M-A-R-I. Do you remember this, Josh, or was it too, too late in the night? I've pushed it from my mind. No, I do remember this, Dan. Maybe uh, our cocktail selections follows some advice that we'll have, foreshadowing some advice that I'll have on this episode today of going outside your comfort zone and trying some new things and asking for advice from uh, those who may know more than you about certain topics. Because that's what we did. We really, it was almost like a dealer's choice, right? We were... You know, we had, I think, the first round, like the Old Faithful. I had the the gin and tonic or something that I knew that I was going to like from this place. And I was tempted, I admit, Dan, I was tempted to just go for one more round of something that I know I like. But I think you were the one that was like, hey, you know, let's let's mix it up a bit. Let's try something new. Well, we had we had heard of these uh, drinks a couple of times in, in previous times we've been out. And it came to our attention because one of the bartenders said that when bartenders get together, they order something called Fernet. And we said, oh, what do you mean they order this? So there is a bittersweet liqueur called Fernet that I guess this is called the bartender's handshake. When they're going to a bar, this is what they order. And then they know that the other person is also a bartender and they strike up a conversation apparently about this beverage. But it's part of a class of, of alcohols called Amari, which are bittersweet liqueurs, um, typically served either before a meal or after a meal in Italy. And I think they kind of came about at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. But what's so cool about these drinks is that they are, it's alcohol steeped with herbs and spices and barks and roots and all sorts of uh, botanicals. So each one has this really distinctive flavor 
And uh, Josh, you can say how we drank them, but I think some people are maybe familiar with Aperol, which is which is one of these Amaro. Uh, and Aperol is typically served as a spritz. So if you've had that, you have had an Amaro. Yeah, that's, that's a great example, Dan. And also, uh, many of these, you know, as you mentioned, have a lot of these really potent flavors. And so a lot of times the... Medicinal, some would say. Uh, you could say that uh, these these amaris or amaros will often be served as mixers just a little dash of these flavors to give some depth to other cocktails where there are other flavors that are uh, more traditional like uh, you know some citrus or some other alcohol flavors um, and one of those that you see all the time uh, agnostura bitters would be an example of one of those that uh, you know you might see in an old fashioned right you might have a couple little dashes of that in with the, the bourbon and the sugar and all that but Turns out um, there are those. You can get it served on the rocks if you want to. Order a whole serving of that. So that's what we did, Dad. That's what we did. Yeah, they had it hidden on the bottom of the menu. There was an Amari. And, and Amari is the plural. Amaro is the singular. So for the word mix out there, that's why uh, we're using these different terms. Uh, There's a section of the menu. It had a list of, I don't know, 15 or 20 different Amari. And... Mm-hmm. You and I, knowing nothing about them, <laughs> asked our server, you know, what's good? And so I think you had the, you ordered the Braulio, although I ended up drinking it because I don't think you liked it very much. And well, the Braulio was what was, uh, I put it completely in the hands of the server and she recommended the Braulio, which then I later saw in the menu ended up being the most expensive and the one at the bottom of the list, which I think actually they may have been organized from lightest flavor to most intense flavor and this one was at the very bottom <laughs> yeah the braglio was uh, uh, it comes from the italian alps so it's got this minty kind of juniper flavor it's intense yeah, it, it was intense dan it it knocked my socks off uh, more than i could say any other drink i've had in recent memory and uh, yeah <laughs> i ordered the chinar which is I, I guess one of the main flavors is artichoke Although I don't think I got a very artichoke flavor out of it. Anyways, these these drinks are very, very sweet and also very, very bitter. And they are meant for sipping and discussing. And it's an experience in a way that I think a lot of cocktails uh, are not. And so I, I enjoyed it. And I would probably try other flavors just to get that intensity again. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was definitely... It made for a memorable a memorable experience, Dan. So... Uh, as you I spit chinar across the room. <laughs> I applaud you for taking us on that journey. I don't know that I could say I would regularly make this a part of my <laughs> of my cocktail ordering or my spirit ordering process, but I'm glad that I did it. And I would happily I would happily ask for a smaller serving next time if I, I could. I think that's fair. And and I should have said this earlier. These were developed as digestive aids, many of them, or in the times when People used uh, botanicals as medicine as well. So some of the ingredients, there's a, a root called gentian that have been shown to aid in dyspepsia. So <laughs> some of these ingredients may actually help you digest your food, which is how they're, they're consumed in Italy. Well, now that you say that, my digestion has not never been better than the last week, go. and now go. I know why. Now I know Tell why. us more, Josh. <laughs> All right, Dan. Well, like like you said, we had a great time together and looking forward to, uh, to getting back together with you again soon. But in the meantime, why don't we say a thank you to our friends at Promega? So we're going to talk a lot about career goals today. So I'm encouraging you to have career goals in mind, but... 
It's important to make sure you and your PI are on the same page, and one way you can do that is through creation of an Individual Development Plan, or IDP. An IDP ties an employee's responsibilities to learning objectives and professional growth. If you'd like to learn how to write an IDP to really help your career trajectory and career planning, you can learn more about it at promega.com slash helloIDP. And Josh, I also want to thank uh, patron Pranav. I don't think we thanked him, although he's been in the Slack channel. I don't think we got it into our episode notes. So thanks again to Pranav and sorry for the delay. Thanks a lot, Pranav and all of our other awesome patrons. All right, Josh, I'm excited to hear your life story condensed into however many minutes we've allotted for this. So let's get on with it. All right, Dan. So I thought it'd be interesting to do something a little different. I've been thinking about doing something like this on the show for a while. It has been a long time since you or I really, in an organized way, shared our own experiences and our own trajectories. I think we may have done it to some extent way back. I don't know if it was in the single digit episodes or maybe Definitely. in the teens, but uh, you know we're here at 178. So I think that's been at least five years ago. Um, so I think this is useful. One, just to, one of the things we always want to do on the show is share other people's experiences, things they've learned, pitfalls that maybe they figured out a way through or a way around so that maybe that will help you if you encounter similar pitfalls or just to give you some strategies to make your own training or career trajectory easier. And so I'm sure many of these things that that I'm going to share in my own trajectory have bubbled up to the surface at one point or another through many of the episodes through the years. But um, anyways, I was reflecting, I'm hopeful uh, on my own experience, I'm hopeful that maybe there's some lessons here or some nuggets that people listening might be able to take something from to, to help them in their own career trajectory. Do as you say, not as you do, right, Josh? <laughs> That's exactly right. I'll say from the start, Dan, I really had, when I was first thinking about doing this, I thought, okay, I'm going to just lay out my experience as an undergrad, how I figured out that I even liked research and how I decided to go to grad school and how I chose a school, how I chose a lab once I got there, how I shifted my career goals and ultimately decided on making a career a career transition that I could just sort of fit all that into one nice episode. But as you know, Dan, I tend to be a little long winded. So I think this may have to be a multi-part series. So I think today we might focus a little bit on the early days of my career and how I first even figured out this research uh, was a thing. And I know many of our listeners are at that point in their career where maybe they're an undergrad, maybe they just graduated, they're even just trying to figure out if they want to go to grad school. So I thought I would share my experience going through that similar process. I was going to say the same thing, Josh. We get uh, emails from lots of listeners who are at that stage. They are pre-PhD and they listen to the show to prepare themselves to figure out is this something I want to do? If it is something I want to do, how do I get there? And so I think there are plenty of people who would benefit from that early experience. And I'm excited to hear what you have to say. All right, Dan. Well, you know, when I was an undergrad, I ended up pursuing a biology major. And and obviously, I ended up going the route of, of a biomedical PhD. And that's been my career 
experience ever since that time. But, but you know, I didn't come into college thinking that way. Uh, I didn't come into college thinking I wanted to do biology. What I really thought I wanted to do was maybe math or physics, because those are things I did okay with in high school. And I think you had a similar experience to me, Dan. We both went to fairly rural. We grew up in fairly rural places. And I don't know if this is true everywhere, but at least in my experience, where I grew up, if you did well in math or science in school, in high school, it was kind of a given or an expectation that those were the types of things you would pursue as a career. That's at least, that was my experience. That's how it felt to me. I don't know if that was true, but that's how I internalized it. Yeah, it's interesting because I I certainly ended up on that same path. I don't know that I felt I, I I'm trying to think back to whether I felt a an external pressure to pursue a certain thing. I mean, I was interested in science, and so I ended up studying science. But I can't remember somebody saying you should go into science and not business administration. Like I just don't <laughs> I don't remember that uh, push from from my high school. Yeah, yeah, maybe for me, Dan. You know, I've I've had these other interests, and I remember having these interests at the time. You know, I did things like like music. I enjoyed uh, you know I enjoyed singing. I enjoyed playing you know playing guitar at the time. I enjoyed I did theater in high school, and I guess sort of art humanities expressions were also things that really brought me a lot of joy. Maybe even brought me more joy. <laughs> um, things that I was really proud of and thought of as my identity back in those days, but. I think I always, and again, this could be a me thing. I don't know where this came from, but I think I always separated those out that like, all right, well, those things are less, should be less important than these things I was doing in school, like doing well in my math class, doing my science classes. You know, I should really prioritize these as I move through at least my school life and my professional life and kind of minimize these other things. And I think, honestly, I mean, that could be a shortcoming in the way that I thought about and approached my career in those days. I, I think the bias is that it's harder to make a career in music or as an actor, even though those would be exciting careers. I think the general consensus is that's difficult and you have to get very, very lucky and also probably work very hard to make success at that. Whereas if you work in the sciences or the legal profession or business, then there are more opportunities. It's You don't have to wait tables while you hope to be discovered. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Dan. And you know, as we're having this conversation, as I think about it, I think that's probably why I may have ended up going in different in, in certain directions with my career, you know, having that fast forwarding, having that that scientific uh, educational background and having that biomedical PhD, really looking for ways, I guess maybe that were more performative or more creative uh, ways that I could express or build upon that educational background to do a job that still scratched that itch to a certain point and allowed me to do some of those things I like to do. Your motivated abilities will keep coming out. <laughs> there you go. There you <laughs> Whether go. you figure that out or not, they will keep showing up. They sure do. Uh, so anyway, around that time, when I came into undergrad, I really did have that mindset like, okay, I'm here. I'm going to pursue some kind of math major or maybe one of the more mathematically inclined sciences, maybe physics or chemistry or something. And I would say for the most part, those plans started getting rethought about the time I started taking upper level college <laughs> math classes. I think I found that my my rural Virginia uh, math training, while I might have been really amazing in those contexts, it was a lot different uh, when I got to my upper level college math. And that really I made me rethink experience. my plans. 
Yeah, I had the same experience. I was I was great at calculus in in high school. I was not great at calculus in college. It turned out. <laughs> yeah, and you might have been like you might have been like me, Dan, where I think math in high school was like, oh, this is a fun puzzle to work out, and that exactly. was not exactly the experience I had in these upper level math classes. And even Dan, you know, I took some chemistry classes my freshman year. And it just wasn't doing it for me. They were kind of boring to me and just, you know, we're not, they were not my thing. They were not for me. And it wasn't until, I think it was the second semester of my freshman year, we had to do these freshman seminar classes. And I took this course called Emerging Diseases. And so it was just about 15 of us in the class and the professor, we, we read these books talking about uh, different infectious disease. Like we talked about Ebola and HIV outbreak and things like that. And that was really the first thing in my college experience that captivated me that I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. You know, I'm not just going to this class to hopefully get a good grade or just to, I don't know, check some requirement off, but like, oh, wow, I really want to learn more about this topic. And and it was really that class and, and that instructor too, who I think, you know, she was clearly really enthusiastic about this topic and that you know, that was in, infectious, if you want to say it a certain nice. way. Thank you. Say to me, like, I want to learn more. And so, it was really then that I thought, you know, maybe I should try some biology classes. You know, I really hadn't taken any biology classes. So, it, it wasn't until my sophomore year that I finally took Bio 101. And that really reinforced that, okay, these are interesting topics to me. I actually really liked those scientific courses more than some of the other courses I've been taking. That's so interesting. So, do you think that that, that spark, that light bulb of not just I'm I'm good at this subject and therefore I should pursue it. The oh I actually want to know more about this on my own. Do you think that just happened because the college class was structured in such a way that it it drew out your curiosity as opposed to being fed the material you had to learn in high school? Like was it just the right place at the right time? Or do you think there's something inherent about the way that biology works that your brain wants to find out more about? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it could have been both because, you know, as I mentioned, the even the format of that course that really captivated me was very different than, you know, it wasn't a big lecture course going through you know, regurgitating information. It was a small number of students. We were reading books on that topic. We were uh-huh. hearing stories, you know. So, yeah, maybe that has something to do with it. Although I will say, once I started taking then the large lecture courses about biological topics, I was objectively more interested and eager to learn in those courses than I was like in my math class or in my chemistry class that had a similar format. So, you know, I think it could have been, could have been both. Um, But, you know, I'll say this, Stan, too. I don't know. Maybe this was just a shortcoming or a bias from my own educational background, at least at the high school level. I remember I had not taken many biology classes, period, because I remember as a student who was doing well in school, in high school, the the actual structure of taking classes was if you did well, like in your eighth grade science and math courses, you skipped biology to take chemistry early. Yeah. So normally you would, in my, in the county where I was in school, you would normally take chemistry in 10th grade. But if you did well in eighth grade in math and stuff, then they would accelerate you and you would take chemistry in ninth grade at the expense of taking biology. And Most never take biology. biology. So I actually never had it, you know. And so, and even then, you know, I ended up going to this, um, there was this consortium of other rural counties. We had this, uh, we called it governor's school, but it was like a, 
what's the word, sort of like a magnet type school right. for half a day. Um, and it was students from all these different counties. And you could take biology or chemistry or physics. And the students who were more mathematically inclined were sort of shoved into this chemistry physics track and everyone else took biology. So I think I also just the way that structure that I was exposed to that was reinforced to me almost made me think like, oh, well, if you're like a serious student, you know, you don't take biology. That's interesting. I wonder if that's happening, if that's happening more generally, like in a national sense, if if a lot of programs view biology, a lot of schools say, view biology as less advanced than chemistry or physics and therefore are shunting some of their best students into those other fields as opposed to biology. Yeah, I think that could be true. I'd be interested to hear from other people. I mean, it's worth noting as well that this was the the mid to late 90s, so it's possible. I'm sure there are many things that happened educationally then that hopefully we've gotten better at. Maybe there are other things we've gotten worse at um, since then too. But yeah, I think that was true for me and could be true for other people. And so only by happen chance did I sort of stumble into biology um, in college where I almost was completely sort of steered away from it, you could almost say, in high school. So, yeah. That's but you, had, you had a lot of catching up to do. You hadn't learned the Krebs cycle five times in a row yet. I had not. And, you know, Dan, this is this is going to really sound maybe funny. I think I think students now, like my kids know about DNA and they, you know, they know about ATGC and all that. And they're like elementary, middle school. But <laughs> I'm not trying to date us. But even things like the human genome being sequenced, that was just happening around that time. DNA, learning about the genetic code and what that meant wasn't necessarily part of the standard curriculum when I was in high school. And so it honestly, Dan, was not until my first semester of my sophomore year taking biology 101 that I was learning about molecular biology and really details of DNA and genetics for the first time. And so encountering that information for the very first time was fascinating. I was like, wow, this is really cool stuff. So it really did captivate me. Side and, note, my youngest son is in CRISPR camp this summer. They're just uh, <laughs> genetically modifying whatever organisms they find out in the wild. It's great. Yeah, yeah kids these days, you know, it's great <laughs> what they have access to. <laughs> so, so you know, as so I'm in these biology classes, and that's all going well, and I'm, I guess, happy on one level that I've finally found something that I'm really interested in in college. But, you know, I can remember also sort of looking around and having conversations with some of the other people in my classes and at least at my school, most of these people who were biology majors, they were pre-med students. I would say the majority Absolutely. of them were pre-med students or some other pre-health profession. And so I thought like, well, okay, if that's what most everybody else here is doing, maybe that's what I should do as well. So I can remember, I have this distinct memory from those days, going to a pre-med club meeting. And it was it was in the evening. I remember going after dinner one night uh, back to the biology building. And there was a speaker there who was talking about how you go to med school and what it's like. I think, I think maybe uh, he was a doctor and he was talking a little bit about that. And it occurred to me during that meeting, like, I really don't like hospitals at all like I really hate being in those environments why would I want to do that as a job that actually that sounds doesn't make terrible sense. <laughs> um, so you know I had that revelation that I can really really stands out in my mind but that got a little bit stressful because now suddenly I was like okay well I'm in this situation where I'm taking these classes I think I know what I'm interested in but now I have this uncertainty about well what do I want to do with that 
after college? You know, am I going to end up being unemployed? Like, what do I do now? Maybe should I try to switch majors? Because maybe this isn't the right thing to get the kind of job that I want. Yeah, you just got on the highway that leads to Chicago, and you're like, "But I don't want to go to Chicago." Like, and exactly. where are you supposed to? Where else are you going to go? Exactly, and and you know, to compound those issues and to make matters worse, like I mentioned, I was from a pretty rural area, and so I didn't have any experiences, or or I didn't really know people who had experiences with scientists or with research. That wasn't anything I knew about in those days, and I can. I can remember a conversation that I had around that time with my parents um, along the lines of, you know, hey, I, I like these biology classes. I think I want to be a biology major, but I don't want to do medicine. And I remember in that conversation, it really came up like, well, the only things you can really do with biology major are health, something healthcare related, or you can be a park ranger. <laughs> Both good options. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't want to be a doctor. I knew that for sure. But I was like, well, maybe a park ranger wouldn't be so bad. Uh, I mean, I do like the outdoors. Be all right. (laughs) You like camping and fishing. I have no idea what a park ranger does. I would like to point that out, obviously. (laughs) True. So, you know, I think that left me with a lot of questions and honestly, even a lot of advice from, from people I knew personally from back home who they didn't really know a lot about what was available. Almost trying to dissuade me, you know, from that from that major, from that career path. And so anyway, I think in the midst of all that, an important thing that I eventually did was actually utilize my academic advisor. And at my school, at least, anyone who was a junior you had who had declared a major, they assigned someone in your department to you as a, an academic advisor. This was usually a faculty member. And so I decided to actually schedule a meeting with her, and this was the first time I had, had met with her. And decided to just be open about some of these things I was thinking about. You know, that I liked my biology classes just fine, but had no interest in pre-med and no clue where this was leading me and what I was going to do after college. And that meeting ended up being one of those trajectory-altering moments. I can really remember specific things about that meeting, including her saying, well, have you thought about doing research? And the honest answer was no. Honestly, didn't even know research was a thing. Um, I mean, I guess I, I knew on one level that there were these people called scientists. Like I knew scientists existed and that probably they did research, but that didn't feel like a thing that was out there for me to do. That was not a thing that was approachable. Like I wouldn't have even known how would you pursue that. Right. You see it in headlines. Scientists have discovered a new planet or scientists have uncovered the cause of this disease. But who are these people and how did they get to be what they are? Yeah, and I think it was really eye-opening for me when she went on to explain that most of the faculty in the department who were there teaching my courses, that many of them also had labs and were actually scientists. And and beyond that, they had students who were in their labs working, doing research. So my next question... Like this hidden other world. It really was. It really was. It was was like the scales fell from my eyes. I was like, wow, I I didn't know this existed. So, you know, I think an obvious next question that I had was, well, can I do research with you? And she was like, well... (laughs) (laughs) You show up saying, I don't know what I didn't want to do. She's like, how about research? And you're like, okay, do you do research? Yes. Can I do research with you, please? (laughs) Are you my mommy? <laughs> like, well, you know, my lab's kind of full at the moment, which I know now on the other side, like, oh, well, that's code for, eh, I don't know. Nope. You, 
You're a person who didn't know they wanted to do this 10 minutes ago. (laughs) That'd be a great student to bring into your lab. You know, what could go wrong? Uh, But, you know, to her credit, she did follow up and say uh, that there was this new faculty member who had just arrived, and of all things, he was a microbiologist who studied infectious disease. So (laughs) So she she voiced you off onto this other guy. (laughs) That is exactly what happened, Dan. And, you know, honestly, I know you mentioned being at my alma mater um, a few weeks ago. I think it would be fascinating to interview (laughs) him. to interview him to hear his side of the story, but that is exactly what happened. Uh, And I think in retrospect, he was probably as a new person desperate for people in his lab. So he was, was kind enough to actually take me into his lab. I kid you not, Dan, I can remember going into his lab on the first day and I really had this moment where I felt like all of a sudden, wow, this is what I want to do. Like, these are my people. This is a thing that, I could really get behind, you know, that I think could be really interesting to do. Yeah, Dan, I know a lot more about science training, what motivates students now than I did back then. And, you know, looking back on it, I can now understand that there were likely other things at play that led me to have that, that positive right. viewpoint of the lab beyond just research is amazing and it's my calling. It's the one true thing. That's how that we all feel, me. Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I realized that, you know, first of all, I was in an environment at this school. It was like a smaller liberal arts type school. There were no PhD students. There were no postdocs. I mean, certainly research there was happening at a much slower pace than at the type of school where, where we did our PhD. Um, but as an undergrad there, the experience that I was able to have was to just jump right in and be part of an independent project and and learn to have that responsibility of a real project and, and really grow to be a leader in that lab environment as an undergrad if I wanted to be. And I don't know that I personally would have connected with the experience of being an undergrad at a big school quite as much where, you know, maybe I would have ended up in a lab or matched with a PI, but, you know, you'd end up washing dishes for the first six months. And if that goes well, you know, maybe we'll pair you with a postdoc to help out with their project. And, you know, in that environment, you can really be kind of low on the ladder um, for quite some time as an undergrad. Uh, But where I was, you know, I was able to hit the ground running and... I still have an affinity for those types of environments to this very day. I was going to say, do you recommend when you're talking to high school students or somebody who maybe has an interest in research, do you guide them toward a small liberal arts college or toward a tier one research university and explain to them the differences? Because I can imagine for you, it may have been a total turnoff and you would have gone to be a park ranger, right? If you had gotten (laughs) the wrong experience. Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are a lot of considerations that people have when choosing an undergrad institution, when choosing where to go to college. It might be the location, like the proximity to to family or your support system, or maybe you want it to be far away from that. I don't know. Or it might be the financial implications, the cost of going to a certain school, or you know, it might be a desire for a bigger school and the things that that has to offer or not wanting that. That was not something I wanted. I was actually appealing to me to go to somewhere that was a little bit smaller. So I don't know that I would encourage someone to choose. I think there are a lot more things to think about when choosing an undergrad institution right. than just what kind of research experience you might have. But what so I can say... you happen to get lucky. <laughs> you, well, I, yeah, I can say for me personally, I can see how that environment and that experience at that type of school 
was a real positive experience for me, which is not to say you can't have a positive experience at a bigger school because the challenge is there are a lot more opportunities to get involved in research at a larger school than a smaller school. And I know this to be true today. I mean, I still actually am quite close with my undergrad advisor and, and some other folks there. And there are a lot fewer faculty in those departments that are doing research. And there are a lot more students who might approach them wanting to get experience in their lab. So, and I think that's only intensified. And I'll say one more, I guess, consideration or maybe disadvantage from a grad school point of view. I think graduate programs have gotten more competitive over the years since those days when you and I were applying to grad school. They let me in, Josh. So that tells you something. Well, I mean, truthfully, when we were going through the process, we both went, we've talked about this on the show, we both went straight from undergrad to graduate school. Um, I know you went to a a slightly larger, like a research intensive institution, um, not like the one I went to, but you know, the fact that I was able to go to graduate school, get into graduate programs directly, having only done research for about a year and a half at a small liberal arts school, I think that would not be a given today. I think admissions committees in a more competitive environment really value students, for better or worse, that have had research experience at a more research-intensive institution. That's why we've talked about multiple times on the show and talking about being more competitive if you went to a smaller school, even if you did research, that experience may not be valued by an admissions committee as much as if you worked as a technician for a year at a research one institution or spent a summer or two. Maybe you need to leave your small school environment for a summer to go to a big school to do research. Um, so while that was really good nurturing experience for me at that time, that certainly motivated me to do grad school, I think the reality these days is most students who really want to go to grad school are going to need to seek out experiences beyond the small school. Um, Whereas if you're an undergrad at a big school, those experiences are right there on your campus. So pros and cons, I guess I would say, but you know, uh, beyond, beyond just the environment, I can see now how a really key factor for me, and, and this is, this is independent of what type of environment, but I think this is the type of person maybe you're looking for. I can see now how my advisor he really contributed to making me feel excited about the science and the research and making me feel like I was part of it and and could do it. So I think in the moment I didn't appreciate how he was a driving factor of the way I felt positive about it. You know, I just thought like, wow, research is cool. I mean, that was the only experience I had with research was him. (laughs) But you happened to just have a really great mentor in that moment. What you were responding to is good mentorship, maybe more than good research. I think so. And, and you know, Dan, we've heard so many stories on here and have met and talked to so many students through the years where a PI can have the exact opposite effect on a student's perception of research. You know, a bad advisor, a bad mentor can demotivate students. And honestly, they could make someone who's approaching research for the first time walk away from the lab or science thinking that it's not an environment for them. It happens every single day. All the time. And and so, you know, I can, it's worth noting as well, I was a white guy, you know, like going into the lab. You know, I think that experience can be even exacerbated um, if you're an individual who's from a group that's underrepresented in science, where there's not even people who, who look like you that you can even turn to or see in those environments regularly. And so, 
I think there are a lot of ways that people can be turned away from research by having a bad or even a neutral advisor, to be honest. So I think finding environments where you have that positive mentorship and positive PI can have a big impact on your career trajectory and your decision to even persist in that career. But I was fortunate to have that really great mentor who I think set me on, who just made me interested to keep coming back. And and remind me, because you... <laughs> a couple of years have passed, right? You're, you're not a freshman when you find this research experience in college. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, at this point, by the time I find this lab and start coming, you know, I'm in my second semester of my junior year. Wow. So, you know, I'm really, I'm really nearing the end at this point. And so, just to make sure that's clear, you know, I've figured out research existed for the first time the spring semester of my junior year. You know, I've got less than a year and a half remaining in college. And, you know, obviously I ended up going on to a PhD program. I got through it. I did a postdoc. I got in a career that was really rewarding, et cetera, et cetera. Like things, the end of the story, I guess, was good enough. Um, but I think it's important to remind people and to, and to point that out that there is no one true path to graduate school. I mean, there, yes, yeah, certainly are some students out there who they get involved in research from day one in undergrad. I've even, you know, I've even encountered some students who got research experience in high school and then they work for four years and every summer and they do all this stuff, but that's not the norm. That's actually not typical. And lots of students who go on to grad school don't have that experience. And some students discover research even later than I did. Maybe they try it out for the first time after they finish undergrad. And we've right. gotten letters from, from those types of folks. And there are ways to get those experiences and do just fine. Um, But I think what was important, at least for me, uh, when I think back was utilize the support networks that were around me to actually get advice from people who were who were there and their job was to give me advice, which seems obvious. But like I said, I mean, I had this academic advisor available to me, and I'm sure the program even encouraged me to reach out to that person for like a year before I did. But it wasn't until I was in sort of the depths of despair that I did. And it was really helpful. So I'd encourage people, if you have, whether you're in grad school or in undergrad or wherever, there are probably people whose job it is to help you, to give you advice, who are trained, they know what's out there, they can listen to what you're thinking and help you um, move towards the right path. So I think it was important to utilize those support networks. Yeah, and I, I want to add here, the person listening to us right now probably has some interest in pursuing a PhD. And so they, they know this path exists, but certainly they have friends or somebody in their life that maybe is struggling in that same way and doesn't exactly know what the path looks like. And I think you can encourage that person to go talk to their academic advisor, somebody that lives in your dorm or, or is a friend of yours or lives in the same apartment complex, whatever it is, in your classes these resources exist. And I think, Josh, to your point, you didn't know this entire career path existed. And so there are plenty of career paths like that for people listening and for people who aren't listening, but uh, are, you know, three degrees of separation. And so using those resources is good advice, no matter where you are. Yeah. And, and the advice really works as well, even if you are. I know we have a lot of grad students who listen too. If you are a grad student, there's relative, relevant advice here for you too. There likely are people in your graduate office or your in your department whose job it is to help you navigate the PhD training. So if you're hitting a snag with your PI or your progress, or your committee or whatever, there probably are people there who can give you some advice and some perspective on how to get through it. And I know there are people in grad school who 
are having the same levels of doubt and stress about their career path after grad school, the same as I was after undergrad, there are like there are ways you can pursue thinking about what might be out there for you. There are probably careers out there that might be an awesome fit for you that you don't even know about right now. And so taking never the time too to late figure to be that out is a game changer. <laughs> That's right. That's Dr. Park Ranger to you, Dan. Exactly. I, I guess the second thing I would say beyond seek out advice from from people who are there to help you is also be open to trying something new. When I think back, this wasn't necessarily in my nature to do this, but the fact that it really turned out I went from learning research was a thing to then getting involved in research in literally like a day. <laughs> you wow. Know? Uh, which is, I mean, that's kind of a unique situation. But if you do find out about something that, even if something brand new to you that sparks some curiosity, like channel that curiosity, channel that moment and that boost in motivation and enthusiasm to just go pursue that. And, you know, maybe you'll discover it's not for you, but um, I think having an open mind and being willing to follow those leads when they pop up really could lead you somewhere career altering. Yeah, it's great advice. All right, Dan. You know, I know I've said a lot so far. The story has definitely gone on longer than, than I anticipated it would. Um, but I wanted to share one one final memorable moment around that time that, that stands out to me that really was a game changer. And, and again, this is more important information that I didn't know. Um, this information is probably something that many of our listeners do know, but I think the fact I didn't know it and it was so important in clarifying my goals, I always make sure I just explicitly say it so people know it. Um, I can remember that summer after my junior year, I ended up staying staying on campus to continue doing research. Because um, again, at that time, I really loved doing research and the opportunity to do more of it was really appealing to me. And I can remember my PI coming in and asking me, saying, hey, have you ever thought about going to grad school? And at the time, I hadn't really considered that at all because I didn't think I could afford more school. And I remember him just sort of, looking at me kind of perplexed. And then these are the words that really did change my life. Um, And I'm only half joking when I say that. He said, you know, they pay you to go to graduate school. And I really was like, what do you mean they pay me to like do this? That's like (laughs) too good to be true, which is hilarious, you know, for me to to think now. Uh, But at the time... If only you had known. (laughs) If only I had known. Um, But, you know, it really did sound too good to be true. And I can remember... I was staying in the dorm that summer, going back to my dorm room that night, you know, logging on to the internet, you know, and reflecting back, there was internet back in those days. Um, But I can remember going online and doing some research on a few PhD programs in microbiology, which was the type of lab I was in. And sure enough, I found all these schools that I'd heard of that were in my region that had these PhD programs in microbiology and they had information about what it was like to be a student in those programs. And sure enough, Every one of them, they were paying your tuition, and they would give you like $18,000 a year. And Whoa. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> High roller. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, and so that is really, what we was, started at, isn't it? It's around yeah, what we I started Yeah, I think you and I started at $18,500 per year was our... Oh, the 500 really, really makes it better. It really did. It really did. It was but to your point, that, that it, not everybody's getting that. And, and you say they pay me to go to grad school. That is true for this very narrow subset of grad schools uh, in some of the STEM fields, right, that are, are grant-funded. Yep. It's not true for our humanities friends. It's not true for our um, friends in the law, grad schools, and obviously not medical school. So what an opportunity. 
um, for people that maybe didn't think about going on because of those financial constraints, there's a way for you to get through it without going further into debt. Yeah. And I think it's worthwhile for people to, I mean, finances are a very real uh, restraint and consideration that we all face no matter what we pursue. And so I think what was important to me in that moment was I didn't know. Like I, or I was, I was either consciously or subconsciously making decisions about my career based on information that I didn't have. And so I think it's important as you're thinking about careers, go ahead and look into them, you know, at least get all the information. And so for me, just knowing like, oh, wow, as a PhD student in this field I'm interested in, I'll actually be financially supported to do that. That was a real game changer. And so maybe depending on what you want to pursue, it's the opposite. Maybe there's a cost to doing it. Um, maybe that will factor in for you. So anyway, I always, but I always take every moment I can to make sure people know what I did not know, that at least in the sciences, uh, pursuing a PhD um, is something they will usually pay you to do. And I don't think that's a reason on its own to go do those things, but, uh, you know, it's a good perk if that's what you want to do. Yeah, certainly not. <laughs> don't go into it for the money because uh, you think grad school is going to be so lucrative, but it may remove a barrier to you getting there. Definitely. And so I think the last thing I want to say is another reason that that this sort of moment in time in my, my career journey stands out to me is it kind of goes back to the beginning of what I was talking about, where you know, I was going through school, I was going through my career path, and, and there are other moments in my career path where I can remember having a lot of stress. And in those moments that were the most stressful, they were times where I didn't have a clear goal. I didn't have a clear vision of where this was taking me. And I think part of why those few clarifying, those couple of clarifying moments really stand out to me, even today, years later, is they really were, at least for me, a remedy to a lot of stress because suddenly I had a goal. I had something I could work towards. I kind of knew where this was headed. And again, there are times, and I'll talk about this maybe on later episodes, where your goals can change. You know, you can decide the thing you thought you wanted to do is not what you want to do, and that's totally okay. But at least for me, um, finally identifying a goal really did change things. And those were some of the times in my career where I was the least stressed and the most productive because I had something tangible that I was working towards. Here, here, same, same experience on this side. And it's, it's the not knowing it's the not having somewhere to put your energy, you can't work towards something, the future looks hazy, and that haziness makes it feel dark. And just having that little pinprick of light, of, I want to go do this, and I don't know how I'm going to get there, and it's going to be tough, and there are all these things in my way, but at least I know I'm walking in that direction, I think changes everything. So um, finding that thing for yourself is difficult, obviously, and it's individual, and people can help you with it, but nobody can do it for you. But once you find it, uh, it is revelatory. It, it, it gets you out of depression and anxiety about the future and into... Well, things may not be great at this moment, but they will get better. Definitely, and that's what and that's what we want for everyone who who's listening, um, you know, listening to this show and going through their training. And we know there are people at all different stages of their career, and and maybe after going through all this, that would be the encouragement I would have. No matter where you are in the career path, whether you're in undergrad now or you're sort of in the in between graduate school and thinking about grad school, or maybe you're in. 
or between undergrad and grad school, maybe you're slogging your way through graduate school or a postdoc right now. It can be very easy, almost like the default. And Dan, you and I, I know, have both been here where you don't have a clear goal, you're feeling stressed, and you just keep doing the same thing day in and day out. You kind of get in that rut, like, well, I'm going to go back in, I'm going to do this again. I don't know why. Um, But I guess the encouragement maybe we would have for you is put some effort in, maybe this week for the first time, you know, put some effort into thinking about your next step. What might you want to do? Pursue some leads. Talk to some advisors. Talk to some people who might have some information about careers or graduate programs or whatever it is. Because um, it really it really can change your whole outlook once you identify uh, some goal to work towards. I know it did for me. I know it did for you, Dan. And I think it would for our listeners as well. Awesome, Josh. Now, I know this is not the end of your career story because you didn't stop as an undergrad. So so I expect we're going to hear more about this topic. I sure hope so, Dan. If you'll have me back on the show, um, I'd be happy to share more. I'm going to have to talk to uh, my co-host and see if he approves. All right, Dan. Well, certainly it's been uh, it's been cathartic. I think for me to uh, relive these these times uh, many years ago in my life. I think it's fun to think back that far. I mean, I don't often think back to those undergrad days, but it is kind of entertaining to see to be able to look back and see where you took a turn, uh, and and you've been able to describe them with sort of pinpoint accuracy. I don't know that everybody has those light bulb moments where they talk to one person and it changes the course of their career, but you have them, and and it, it's puts in such stark relief the, the those moments in our lives when everything changes even though nothing really changed everything <laughs> changed that's right and and you know if you have moments like that 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 you can think of or you just have other other topics you'd like us to explore more on the show We'd love to hear about that, too. You can always email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. We love your feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money or the Amari bitters. Amari money. Amari money. (laughs) Amari money, Amari problems, Dan. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for indulging me today, Dan, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. All right, Josh. Well, we'll see you next time. See you next time.